Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of the end of the chapter in which Paul is beginning to bring uh, really chapters one through three sort of to a, to a conclusion and uh, really give the, the point of uh, invitation, so to speak, to them to respond properly to the truths that he's been saying. And essentially it is that they should humble themselves and, and uh, become foolish because the debate has been about whether the wisdom of man or the wisdom of God is superior, Paul wants them to humble themselves by being willing to accept the world's rejection. Go ahead and become foolish. Allow the world to think you're foolish because you actually have taken God's side. And that would be the position of humility because none of us and naturally want to be thought foolish. But if we recognize that taking God's side in it actually is the position of wisdom, then we'll humble ourselves and bow the knee to God's wisdom. We'll become fools according to the world, but actually wise according to Christ. And that means that it had that double edge of accepting the world's rejection while embracing God's revelation. It is to humble ourselves, is to receive the truth of God, regardless of what the cost might be in terms of, of the world around us, the culture in which we find ourselves. And we do that because we don't want to be self-deceived, right? The, the reality of it is what the text sets up is, is the, the kind of, uh, it's not really an equation, but it's the kind of equation that Jesus taught in the Gospels. The one who humbles himself will be exalted, right? And so what this text says is that if you will actually become a fool, then you will actually have God's wisdom, right? You'll, you'll actually be recognizing the truth of God, become foolish before the world, and you'll become truly wise become foolish before God, and you will miss out on the wisdom of God. That is, if you reject his wisdom, you ultimately will come under the consequences of that, in which he says he catches the wise in their craftiness. He makes the reasonings of the wise in this world useless. So, so Paul sort of has leveled the, the attractiveness, if I could put it that way, of the wisdom of this world. He has said it is actually a path away from God that will, will actually bring the consequences of rejecting God's wisdom. And so he comes to the second part of his conclusion, beginning in verse 21. Look, if you would, there, chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. So then, let no one boast in men or humans, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So having sort of laid bare the foolishness of the world and calling them to a position of humility, he, he really sort of pins, pinpoints the problem, the key issue 
And, and if I could put it this way, is in what or in whom will we boast or glory? What will we consider to be of greatest significance? In their particular case, it was in people. Remember, you start all the way back in chapter one, people saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. They were boasting in men. And that's where their glory was focused. And Paul comes now here at the end of chapter three, right down to the, the central part of it. And that is, what are you going to actually boast in? What is going to be the point of glory for you? And, and that's really the issue that's been at stake all the way along. So let's just think for a moment about the problem that's going on at Corinth so that we can understand. They had some mistaken thinking, and that's why the first part of verse 21 says, so then, right? So he's, uh, in some ways, he's, he's drawing a conclusion to everything that he said in the chapters before this. So then, but also specifically the things right before this, your choice between being foolish in the world's eyes and wise in God's, or foolish in God's eyes and retaining the wisdom of the world. What, what's at stake then, so then, you need to draw some conclusions. They had a mistaken kind of thinking about what's best, what's wisest. And he's been hitting that again and again and again. And, and he's wanting them to come to the conclusion that the, uh, the, 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 the operating system for a Christian is different than, than this world, right? In this world, people are chasing after the approval and popularity and power that it offers. And if that's the way they were thinking, they need to turn from that. But also, practically speaking, it's a, a misguided trust that he's dealing with, right? Look at the end of the verse, it says, or end of that first sentence. So then let no one boast in men or in humans, or some of you might have translations that say human leaders, because that's clearly the context. He's gonna, next verse, you're gonna talk about, again, Paul and Apollos and Cephas. So this isn't, this is, it's true generally, don't boast in humans, but it's, it's also specifically tied to the fact that they were setting up their banner under their chosen big name, and they were making that the point of boasting or pride. They were trusting in these people or their association with these people as the ground on which to stand. Listen to what uh, one commentator, old, old commentator said. Sometimes the old, old ones have captured it best. He says to boast in, boast in men is to trust in him or it, if you're boasting in something, as the ground of confidence or as the source of honor or blessing. It is to regard ourselves as blessed because of relationship to it. Or you could probably put in the word, in place of the word blessed there, to think ourselves special because of relationship to it, right? They wanted to be 
Paul's or Apollos's or Cephas. And by claiming that name, they were actually saying, that's our place of confidence. We're associated with this person. And they were therefore special by relationship to it. Their trust was being placed in that. And that's, that's a problem that is confronted a few times, well, all the way through scripture, right? I started this morning with Jeremiah chapter nine. Let, let, let him who boasts not boast in his wisdom or in his might or in his riches, right? The tendency for us is to objectify something and make it the thing that makes us special, makes us better than others gives us the pride of place or standing. In, in Galatians, it's people boasting in the flesh of those that they've pressed into a kind of works basis, and they want to be able to boast in that identification, right? So, so that's the tension, is what they're doing is having a, a, mis, a misguided trust in someone, even if good, Paul's good, Apollos is good, Cephas is good, but none of them can be the ground of our confidence. None of them are the basis of of blessing. None of them are really the, the, the source from whom everything is derived. We can truly only boast in the Lord. Go back over to chapter one, and this is, this is the showing you how these three chapters, remember there weren't chapters when Paul wrote it to the Corinthians. So we tend to seg, uh, you know, segment them out, but it would have been just reading through the letter and the end of chapter one, look what he says, starting in verse 29. Right, God has done all of these things, 29, so that no one may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So so they have a problem of arrogance that shows up uh, basically all the way through the book, right? In the first three chapters, their arrogance is being show, is showing up in the jealousy and strife that has fractured the unity of the church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. That's what he says in chapter three. In chapter five, their, their spiritual arrogance shows up that they are actually proud of sin that's being committed in their midst when in fact they should have been humbled and broken by it. And he says, your boasting is not good. Right, and you, we'd go like, who could be boasting about sin? Well, uh, you know, it doesn't take long. We start looking around to see people who they they wouldn't call it sin; they'd call it their freedom in Christ. And their freedom in Christ is taking them down pathways of disobedience, and they're actually arrogant about it. You're just a little trapped in your legalism. We really understand freedom. And they boast about the things that they're doing and they're actually contrary to Christ. That's what happens in chapter five. Right? Chapter, chapter seven, they're, they're having issues about which uh, they are, are 
pushing back and forth against each other on. Chapter four, they're, they're boasting about their gifts as if they were manufactured by themselves. Their arrogance in, in almost every passage, it goes from, from arrogance that's displayed in boasting. And in this particular case, that's the way it is as well. When someone says, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas, it is their arrogance toward the other two groups. Right? You say, I'm of Paul because you want to put Apollos and Cephas down the pecking order. It's an arrogance that produces boasting and it reflects a kind of foolish trust in someone other than the Lord, because boasting truly can only be in the Lord. So go back to chapter three. So that's, that's the problem he's confronting, and he confronts it with a pretty simple prohibition. Verse 21, so then let no one boast in humans or men or human leaders, as some, I think, properly could translate it. Let no one boast in men. We can be grateful for them. I think Paul uh, would say, you should give thanks for the ministry of Apollos. You should give thanks for the ministry of Cephas, Peter. But being grateful for is different than glorying in. Right? Having a recognition of the benefits of someone is different than actually making them the point of your boasting and confidence and trust. As he's already said in chapter three, they are only servants, not the source of either the message or the blessing. Look at five and six of chapter three. For one says, when one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? That's verse four, five, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So they are servants that God has used to accomplish his purposes, but it is God who is the source of that blessing. And you can't boast in the instrument, you have to boast in the source of it. And the congregation is God's work. It's God's field. It's God's building. It's God's temple. So for you to take the, the boasting away from God and what God has done and move it to one of the servants is actually to go against God and what he's accomplished. It is, it is contrary to it. He wants them to see that they can't, they can't shift their boasting like that. The congregation equals the centerpiece of God's work, and therefore they shouldn't give to servants what should only be given to God. All right, now notice what he does back in, in chapter 3 and verse 21, because he actually uh, he actually gives us an explanation. So so here's the way the text works. Based on what he had already said, so then let no one boast in any men. And then the very next word is for, and it is, here's the explanation for why you shouldn't do this. And he makes three assertions in doing that. Notice one's repeated twice at the end of verse 21, for all things belong to you. And at the end of verse 22, 
all things belong to you. And then here comes the second, and you belong to Christ. And here's the third, Christ belongs to God. So he, he's going to defend his uh, declaration, right? No, let no one boast in humans. And let me give you three reasons for that, right? Let me show you what's wrong with that. And he starts with the first one in verse 21, all things belong to you. And, and here's, if I could put this, and this might be a little bit of a, uh, maybe, uh, uh, I sort of say cheesy, it's not really cheesy, maybe a little bit too light of a way to say it. Basically what he's saying is, when you go, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, you're actually taking one piece of the pie and forgetting the whole pie, right? You're, you're basically saying, I just want this little sliver. I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, when all things are yours, right? You're, you're satisfied too easily at this point because God has given you more than you realize. And because you're looking at this in a purely human way, you're restricting yourself to something less than actually what God has given to you. This is why you shouldn't boast in men, because all things are yours. God has put everything at your disposal in terms of what he's doing in this world for himself. All right, so look at now then in verses 20, in verse 22, he, he sort of unpacks what the all things are. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. So when he, he gets to the particulars of what this all things are, I think it ends up showing two things that they're boasting, first of all, is too shallow, right? They, they, they actually are being satisfied by something less than what God has given to them. And, and this is a little bit of a, of a way of reinforcing the point he's made all, all the way through chapter three, because here's, here's what we need to think about. Think the church, the congregation of God's people, and the servants. Which of those two is more important? Right? The whole passage has said it's the congregation. That, that it is God's field. It is God's building. It is God's temple. And that the servants are just that. They're servants doing the work that God gave them to do. The servants actually exist to do the work of God for the greater thing, right? And what they seem to be thinking is that it's Paul's church or it's Apollos' church or that it's Cephas' church. So if they pick the right guy, then they've got the place that's most important. And, and Paul's saying, you got it backwards. Right? It's not actually about the servant. It's about the, the congregation that God has established. And because if you're in Christ, you're a part of that, then 
All of them are yours. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas are actually serving for the health of the church. Why would you cut off two-thirds of the benefit that God's given to you? That's what I mean by too shallow. All of these men are servants of God to do the work appointed to them by God, and all of them bring blessing and benefit as a conduit of God's grace into the church. Why would you cut off any of them at that point? By saying, I'm of Paul, you've forgotten that actually Cephas and Apollos are yours too. They, they actually are servants of Christ for the health of the church. The church does not belong to the servants. The servants belong to the church. And, and that's, that's a crucial principle to get. But not only was it too shallow, look at the second part of verse 22. It's what I would say is it's too short-sighted because all of a sudden, Paul, and it's almost like he just starts to wax eloquent here, right? Whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and then, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. I mean, he just starts to drop enormous categories out there. I think all of which are helping them to see, or should cause them to see, that their boasting is short-sighted, not understanding that eternity is actually theirs. That Christ's victory over everything has made it possible for them to have a fundamentally different relationship to all of these things. For instance, in chapter seven, he's going to say, we use the world, but don't make full use of it because we know that the world is passing away. Right, so, so when he says here, the world is yours, I believe what he's just trying to communicate is this, is that you can actually possess it rather than being possessed by it. People who have no hope beyond this world have to try and drink the dregs of it, right? If in this life only we have hope, then we need to really eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I mean, we need to make a most of everything. I mean, carpe diem is the only motto they have. Seize the day, because we have to get as much as we can right now. And because actually the world belongs to Christ and his people, chapter six will say, we'll sit in judgment over the world. Right? We won't be judged, chapter 11, with the world. We can actually live in this world in a way that chapter 7, verse 31 says, we can make use of it, but not have to make full use of it. We're, we're still here, right? You and I live in this world, but we know that this world is passing away, 1 John 2 says. It's the one who does the will of God that abides forever. So the world's yours. It's all yours. At one point, you'll reign with Christ. Why are you fighting over one little slice of it right now? Why are you trying to capture and take control of one little part of it when actually all of it's yours. He takes life and death, which pretty much bookends everything, right? 
And because we're in Christ, life and death have been wrapped up in him. We have hope past this life, so we don't measure things only by the temporal portion of it. The second letter that Paul, uh, to the Corinthians in our Bibles, he talks about not looking on the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For this light affliction, which is but for a moment, works a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Right? If you don't see the things that are unseen, then you will be controlled by only what you can see. But Paul knows because, because of Christ, we have all things. Right? Life and death are not enemies for us at this point. We've overcome them through Christ. Look, he says the present and the future, things that are present and things to come. And I think, again, he's trying to help us see that everything is under Christ's control so we can see them clearly and live properly. You know, it's sort of fascinating that Paul lists uh, the, the whole back end of this list, life, death, things present, things to come. Paul lists all of those in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, as potential things that could separate us from the love of God in Christ. Right? You remember how he ends Romans chapter 8? He talks about the glory of Christ in his resurrection. And he says there, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor things present, nor things to come can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying here is this, listen, it's all yours. None of these things are now your enemies. None of them can actually overtake you, right? You don't have to live like people who don't know Christ. And when you start to act as mere humans, remember the beginning of the chapter? When you start to look at life from a fleshly perspective, you start to have strife and jealousy and fight with one another about who's going to have preeminence. You have forgotten everything that is yours in Christ. You're, you're basically settling for a slice of the pie when Christ has actually given you the whole pie. And, and you're missing out on the blessing that he has for you. Because you know, all right, you know that all of the servants of Christ actually are for the benefit of the church. You know that this world is actually going to be all brought under the rule of Christ and his people will reign with him. You know that he's the one who gives life. And if you have that life, death is no longer going to win the victory over it. You can trust God, not just about the future, but the present because he's in control of it all. There's a great line, a song, Christ is mine forevermore. I've heard, every time I hear this line, it just resonates with my heart. Here's what it says. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. And here comes the line. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Right? That's what Paul's talking. I know my pain will not be wasted. It doesn't say, well, there's no pain in Christ. It says, I know my pain will not be wasted. It has a purpose. It's a part of God's plan to accomplish a greater glory for me as his child. I know 
My pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. That's what, that's what Paul's saying is they, they, they live in a world and they're getting their, their perspective shrunk down to just temporal, immediate gratifications. They're missing all that God has done for them in Christ. All things belong to you. Notice the first part of verse 23. Here's the second assertion. You belong to Christ. The believer's life is found in relationship with Christ. We've been joined to him so that we're his and he has become everything to us. Already in this book, Paul has said, we have been made saints in him. We read in chapter one, verse 30, that in him, he has become to us righteousness and sanctification, justification. It's all in Christ. Right In chapter six, he's gonna say, you've been bought with a price so that you're not your own. So therefore glorify God in your body. He says the same thing in chapter seven and verse 23, you've been bought with a price. So because they had come to see who Jesus Christ is and had trusted in Christ, they were no longer separated from God, but they had been joined to Christ. They belonged to Christ. And because they belong to Christ, all that is Christ is theirs. The way Paul says it in Romans chapter eight is we become joint heirs with Jesus Christ, right? The inheritance that Christ has coming when he brings everything into subjection to himself, we are joint heirs with him. We belong to Christ. Christ's inheritance, we will enjoy and participate in if we know Christ. God's plan is to bring everything under the foot of Christ and he will reign, chapter 15 says, including even the last enemy, which is death. They will all be put under the footstool of Christ and he will reign as God's chosen mediator over everything that has been made and we will reign with him. Why? Why would we turn and put our boasting and confidence in some preacher or servant or leader or person? Why would we look to any human to provide for us what only Christ can do? We sell ourselves short. We, we actually are missing out on the fullness of God's blessing and fighting for preeminence, which is what's happening on, right? When, when they say, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos, Fighting for preeminence that way actually betrays their loyalty to Jesus Christ because they don't belong to Paul. They don't belong to Apollos. They belong to Christ. Remember we started back in chapter one? Was, was Paul baptized for you? Right, did Paul die for you? No, it's Christ is the one who died in the place of sinners. It's Christ who's the only one that can save sinners and he offers to them life if they will trust in him. No preacher can do that. No pastor can do that. No evangelist can do that. No 
no leader in, in any kind of Christian parachurch organization can do that. No radio teacher or preacher can do that. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can save the sinner because only Christ, as we sang this morning, perfectly fulfilled the law in absolute perfect obedience, including paying the penalty for the broken law. He did all that was necessary to be pleasing to God, even dying in the place of sinners so that he could offer life in himself that he could overcome sin and death and save everybody who calls on his name. Only Jesus can do that. Why would you boast in someone else? Why would you put your hope, confidence, think your place of special blessing is in relationship to someone else? You belong to Christ, believer. You belong to Christ. That's the place. So, so turning and fighting for preeminence betrays loyalty to Christ by exalting something or someone over him. I mean, there is a right kind of division. Chapter 11 talks about it, right? You, you, you have to separate from those who are dishonoring Christ. You have to, chapter five, separate from those who claim to be believers but are living in a way that actually is contrary to the gospel and will bring judgment. Second Corinthians, Paul will talk about not having fellowship between light and darkness. There's certainly a place for necessary division to Christ. There is not a place for the kind of fragmenting and divisiveness that they've been doing in chapters one through three, where it's about some, some ambition cloaked in someone's name. Right, that they want to exalt someone and turn that way. And what it does do is end up surrendering to the impulse gratification of the flesh to step out of God's will and pursue your own. I think, I think there's a parallel here uh, between the temptation, the third temptation in, in the gospels where Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world if he'll bow down and worship Satan. Jesus, Jesus had the right and was headed toward the kingdoms, right? But what Satan offered to him was the kingdom without the cross. That is, he could have the end product without the path of obedience. And, and Satan was trying to entice him to abandon the path of obedience to get what would be his, his way. And, and I think what's, what's at stake, Paul is, is going after is people who want to have the rule and the place of authority and the place of honor, which is promised to all of God's people, right? God has promised that we will enjoy the glory of Christ. We'll reign with him. We will, we will be glorified with him. But it says, Romans 8, if we suffer with him. And what, what was tempting, it seems, for these Corinthians was to sort of bypass the scorn of the world to get to their approval. Let's find a shortcut. 
Let's skip this being the off-scouring of the earth part. Let's, let's skip this being fools for Christ part, and let's just sort of run right ahead so that the world now accepts us all. And we have the place of honor. And, and Paul's one in the sea that that, that that is actually the work of the flesh. It's jealousy and strife when it starts to end up being conflict with God's people over things that are, are not rooted in the preservation and protection of the gospel. Now look at the last thing he says in verse 23. Christ belongs to God. What we need to see there, and I, and I think we've got to just slow, slow our roll a little bit, all right? Because when we have to think about this, think Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. So this is a reference to Jesus as the mediator, the one who has been chosen by God to be both Lord and Christ over all things. He is certainly the second person of the triune Godhead, and, and has with that equal in essence, authority, honor, worship, but by humbling himself and taking to himself a human nature, he has become the God-man, the Messiah, the one who by virtue of his obedience, remember, you know, you know the text, right? Philippians chapter two, he humbled himself, became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross, Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is identified for us in scripture as the one mediator between God and men. He is the one who is of God as the only source of life, as the only one with the right to rule over everything that's been made. And so what he's doing for us, Paul is actually helping us establish, if I could put this way, a frame of reference within which we would see all of this, right? All of it belongs to us because we belong to Christ and Christ is God's appointed ruler over everything. Christ is the one through whom God is providing salvation and will reconcile all things to himself. So what Paul has done all the way through these three chapters is keep pressing them and us back to the God-centeredness of all this. You see, it was a debate between man's wisdom and God's wisdom between God's way of salvation in the cross or alternative ways that result in boasting in men. It is to have a kind of ministry that is with superiority of speech and wisdom or one that is a demonstration of God's power. It is wisdom that has come from God through the spirit that is not the wisdom of this world. It is in fact that the church is God's field, God's building, God's temple. All of it is God's. And the only way to 
to enjoy and participate in all of it is through Christ because Christ is the one who's come from God to open the way of salvation. He's the one who's coming from God to establish his rule over everything that he's made. So that God, chapter 15 says, will ultimately be all in all. Christ is the one. He is the one who's redeeming all things for himself, that God through Christ has purchased his people and will renew his, crea- his creation. So let me, let me just press home a couple of practical implications on this, all right? I'm gonna read a quote from Lewis that is sort of, you probably have picked up a little bit of the language of it. Uh, in C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, draws an analogy. I think that's appropriate here. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You know what the, you know what the Corinthians were doing? They were making mud pies in a slum. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And Paul goes, all things are yours. God has offered you a holiday, a vacation by the sea, and you want to sit and make mud pies? Because celebrity culture that infected them and infects us today, celebrity culture in Christianity is making mud pies, friend. When we say, I'm of, and fill it in, I don't care who it is. We have substituted the grace and glory of God and all of his gifts to us for some kind of human mud pie. And that's not to denigrate the person. I'm talking about the person who does it, right? If we fall into that pattern, it's actually exalting the servants too highly creates and I think reveals trouble in the souls of God's people. As I said, yes, be grateful for it because the scriptures say that. Hold in high esteem those who risk their lives for the cause of Christ. Uh, Follow the example of because the scriptures say that. Paul says later in this book, follow me as I follow Christ. So I'm not saying uh, any kind of radical throw everything aside. No, obey all that God has said about giving honor, about following godly example, receiving the benefit of instruction and teaching. We can do all of that without boasting in any human servant. Because when we boast in or glory in, we are giving to some person what can only truly be given to God. Who deserves the credit for anything that is done in the work of God. God does, right? Humans are just instruments. It's God who does it. And when we give the credit to people, look at what he did, look at what she did, look at the church he built, look at the ministry he has. Look at how much they've done for Jesus, right? We are actually, we're actually obscuring what the scriptures say. Paul said, for instance, Romans 15, I will boast of nothing 
except for what Christ has done through me. He wanted Christ to get the glory for it. He wanted Christ to be acknowledged as the source of all blessing. And we need to guard them. And I know we wouldn't use this, usually this word, but but sometimes uh, worship of people does infect contemporary Christianity. That, that we put people uh, into the fourth slot in the Trinity almost. Obviously, it wouldn't be a Trinity. I don't even know what it would be, a quadrinity. Right. But there are times where we will, we will actually exalt a person so highly that we give them the homage and reverence that only Christ truly deserves. Right. We cannot do that or else we dishonor Christ. And certainly, we cannot give absolute loyalty to anybody other than God. About Probably about 30 years ago, there was a big big scandal that broke out in one wing of of fundamentalism uh, because of some serious, serious errors. And the man who was at the center of it decided to rally everybody on his side of the fight with they put together buttons and and pushed it and said basically making people you know toe the line of I'm 100% for this person right and if you if you weren't 100% for them then then you were on the opposite side I'm 100% for Jesus right I love you all but nobody can have 100% but Jesus. Nobody. That's what Jesus said. Right? He said you had to choose him over your closest family members in the gospel. Certainly not going to take some, someone else. Right? Jesus alone demands that kind of loyalty and deserves it. And when someone says, I'm of so-and-so, Right? They're exalting somebody to a place that, that that person cannot sustain it. Right, Jesus can, can demand and deserves 100% loyalty because he's 100% perfect. He never lies. He's never wrong. He never sins. Right, You can completely and fully trust him. Therefore, you should completely and fully be loyal to him. Anyone short of that is Christ. I'll follow that person as they follow Christ. That's what Paul says. Follow me as I follow Christ. So, so you cannot, you cannot substitute that, right? And that kind of culture, celebrity culture has permeated uh, Christianity because it's permeated our other culture. And we're just, we're downstream of that, right? We live in a world that makes so much of people, that, that looks to people for their identity and gratification and, and, and association. And it's swallowed up into the church. And what we have to recognize is that culture is built on fleshly desires. Chapter three, verses one and three say. It's built on a competitive basis of jealousy and strife 
and then it perpetuates it into the stream by causing people to think the goal in life is to, 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 to grow up to make a name for myself. I'm going to make a name for myself in this world. I'm going to do this or do that. So that the standard of the success of your life is whether someone's willing to say of you, I'm of so-and-so. They're my hero. They're the person I hold up in high regard. And all it does is perpetuate a continual churning of self-centeredness that works against the love of Christ that should be in our heart, that causes us to follow Christ no matter what, that honors Christ no matter what, that lives for Christ. Because the point that we can't miss is that when humans are exalted, Christ is degraded. Right? When they say, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos, they're actually degrading Christ. And if they're degrading Christ, they're dishonoring God. You see the flow in this text? Right? All things belong to you because you belong to Christ who belongs to God. So if you segment out a part of that and you make that the object of things, instead of seeing it all in relationship to this, when you exalt Paul, you dishonor Christ and therefore dishonor God. Because what God is doing is working through Christ to save sinners and reconcile the world to himself. The centrality, the centrality of the congregation, which is the issue here, Corinth, the centrality of the congregation is actually about the centrality of Christ, which is about the centrality of God. Why do you make so much about the church, pastor? Because the church is Christ's body. It's his bride. It's God's temple. He loved it enough to die. So Paul says to the elders in Acts 20, take heed yourselves and over all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you to shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you know why that flock matters? Because Christ shed his blood for it. Christ loved us enough to die for us. And notice I said that he loved us enough to die for us because he gave himself up for the church. He's gathering a people for his name. And what's at Corinth is, I am of. And what Paul is saying is, you all He's using second person plural. All things belong to you all. You all belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. They're thinking me. Paul's thinking we. Right? They're thinking I. And Paul's thinking us. Because the centrality of the church is the centrality of Christ. Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was attacking Jesus' body. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? 
The centrality of the assembly is because of the centrality of Christ, because of the centrality of God. It matters to Jesus because what God is doing in this world, he is doing in and through the congregation of his people. He's given us the task to carry out the good news to the nations. And when we do, what happens? We make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. That's within the assembly of God's people. That's why in the opening page of church history in Acts 2, as many as received his word were baptized, and that day were added to them, added to them, this group of Christ followers. They, they were brought into it because this is what Jesus is doing. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you realize what we have the privilege to be a part of? And it's because of Christ. Be thankful for every human God has ever used to bless your life, but know that behind them was Jesus. It was Jesus who was speaking through the word. It was Jesus who was working through those hands. It was Jesus that was doing it because Christ is building his church. And we need to not, not boast in any human but boast only in the Lord, glory in our Redeemer. Let's pray together, please. Father, we give thanks and praise to you that you have promised to us every blessing in Christ, that that they all belong to us, even as this text says, all that we need for life and godliness Everything in this world is serving your purposes. Life and death are being used by you to accomplish your will. Things present, things to come are not randomly happening, not running in rebellion against you, but under your sovereign control, moving to the place where everything will be brought under Christ. Every last enemy will be made a footstool for his feet. And because we know Christ will share in that reign and that glory, help us not to be so easily satisfied with the shallow things of this world, nor to be so short-sighted about what really is of greatest importance and most significance. Lord, please help us to love Christ so deeply that his heart controls ours, that we love the things he loves. We live for the things which matter to him. And may you work in us in that way so that we might be a radiant testimony of your grace in this community and to the ends of the earth. May we care for one another just like Christ has cared for us. May you do 
the work here in our hearts that needs to be done to keep us warm and tender toward Christ, boasting only in him. In his name we pray, amen.